if you're new, we're in uh, week three of a, of a series of teachings that are, let's just say they're, they're making us think. It's a series of teachings called The Struggle is Real, The Flesh, the World, and the Devil. <laughs> so welcome to church. If you haven't been to church in a while, um, last two weeks we've been talking about the devil. It's been great. And what I'm hoping is the end result of our conversations over the next, you know, 10 weeks or so, is that we'll have a better perspective on really what God is up to. And then how we can participate in what God is up to faithfully. So this week, I thought it would be really wise for us to take a look at the spiritual backdrop of Scripture. Because Scripture, if we're honest, has a lot more going on to, to it than I think a lot of us realize, or a lot of us really care to realize. I mean, if you look at our culture right now, everything, our culture is excited about supernatural things. So, I mean, just think about media and entertainment. Um, the Harry Potter series, Twilight. Team Jacob, Team Edward, you know, all that stuff. Some of you are like, what? Um, it's vampires, okay? Um, there's, there's all throughout culture. I mean, we're, we're fascinated by supernatural. We've got Marvel. We've got all this superhuman type stuff in our world. I mean, as far as like our entertainment world. And why are we so fascinated by these things? I think there's a couple reasons. One, I think it's a nice little escape I mean, I just on a base level, it's a nice little escape from our regular lives. But two, I actually think it's more spiritual than that. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our hearts. That there's something in us that craves for meaning and divine things outside of ourselves. And left to our own devices, we'll try to find those any way we can. But there's something about the human condition. There's something about being human that longs for something beyond being human. And I think scripture actually has a lot to say about that. Now, here's the big question for us today. And this is going to sound like a trick question. But do you really believe what the Bible says? Do you really believe it? I'm not talking about did Jesus die on the cross? And did Jesus, you know, uh, t- you know, tell us to care for the poor? I mean, those, yes. I mean, but do you, be- do you really believe what the Bible has to say? Or are there things in Scripture that you go, eh, I'm just going to pretend I didn't read that. Well, I don't know where that came from. Or maybe the writers were a little naive or... They were not as sophisticated as I am. So that's the question today. Do you really believe what the Bible has to say? There's a few things I think that are really important for us as we dive into this. There's some sources. Um, I'm going to have a couple of, uh, I think there's a couple quotes on the back of something of yours, maybe. And so if you're, if you're wanting the quotes um, from today, there's like three or four of them. They could be on the back of your program. You're, usually they're on the screen. There's a couple sources there. Um, and then there's, I would encourage you, if you want to dive deeper into this, there's some other places as well. The Bible Project podcast um, is also a great resource. Um, so if this starts to stir some things up to you, 
um, and you want to go deeper, you can come talk to me. We can figure out that, all that stuff out. Listen to what one of my favorite authors says about all of this. The Bible from beginning to end presupposes spiritual beings who exist between humanity and God and whose behavior significantly affects human existence for better or for worse. What he's saying is the Bible has just this presupposition that says that there are spiritual beings that exist and they're at work and they influence behavior. They influence human beings. And um, do you guys need seats? We can figure something out. There's more seats. Scoot in if you need to or whatever. Not to like put you guys on the spot, but you're on the spot. So let me just say this. My journey in understanding, um, if you're anything like me, and I know I am, I grew up in this time and space, right, in America, in the West, what we call the West. And, and that's not just like geographically, but that's also um, a way of thinking and seeing the world. We have a Western perspective. Um, I grew up going to church. And so I had this weird wrestle, right? What does the Bible says? But what is my experience? What is my reality? Okay. And ultimately, I just got to be honest with you. My default worldview is a materialistic worldview. I can touch it. I can see it. I can measure it. I can experience it. Well, then it's real. You're probably like me. But not everybody in the world sees it this way. In fact, that's kind of a minority view of people who live in the world. And over the history of the world, that view, my view, is actually such a minority, it's probably not measurable. Listen to this. This is another quote. From a cross-cultural perspective, the insight that the cosmos is teeming with spiritual beings whose behavior can and does benefit or harm us is simply common sense. It is we Westerners who are the oddballs for thinking that the only free agents who influence other people and things are human. So, uh, I mean, ultimately, we have to wrestle with this idea what Scripture is telling us. And so here's where I'm at today. I'm choosing to say, I'm choosing to say that I believe what the biblical authors are trying to say, that Jesus's view of viewing the world, his perspective on the world, and, and, and able to see things that I cannot see, right? Like able to experience and know things that I don't know, that there's something that I've been blind to about how the biblical authors have actually seen reality. I'm choosing to, cho to admit that. And that's really an important part about understanding what's going on, is choosing to admit that. Because here's what scripture is laying out for us. There's a warfare view of scripture. There is, there is contention in scripture when it comes to good and evil spiritual beings um, on the side of God and not on the side of God. And so I'm going to explain one more quote to you, and then we're going to get into it. 
Is that cool? So if you need coffee, if you're already bored, I'm sorry. I'm so bummed for you. I'm like bummed. I don't mean to bore you. One more quote. At least for those of us who, for whom this collection of canonical books, so the Bible, is no mere collection, but rather constitutes the inspired word of God. So for those of us who approach the Bible as if this is inspired, this is from God. Not seriously considering the warfare worldview, so not seriously considering that that's what's happening, can hardly be said to be an option. However much such a view may conflict with our own naturalistic cultural perspective. So what he's saying is that we have, if we think the Bible is the word of God, and yet we don't hold to a worldview that is about warfare, cosmic warfare, that's coming from Scripture, then we've got to wrestle with that because you and I come from the West. We read into Scripture what we know to be or we perceive reality to be. And so what I just want to open our minds up today is it could it be that Scripture's got a better view on reality than we do? Could it be that if we're trying to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did, that we may need to begin to adopt Jesus' view on reality. And I want to encourage you. If you're sitting here today and this is kind of hard to believe, I get it. It's okay. Totally fine. You can walk out of here with more questions. In fact, there's a chance that you might walk out of here with more questions and you might be kind of angry that I don't answer them. Because I don't have all the answers. Remember, I'm kind of like you. And so this is a worldview that I think we need to start to begin to adopt. And we begin to adopt this worldview, a lot of things begin to make more sense. Not only when we read scripture, but also when we experience evil in our lives. Does that make sense? And so if you're like totally lost, let's start really quick from the beginning. Okay? Um, Scriptures, Jewish and Christian scripture, Old New Testament They come from language. And language is a tricky thing because Scripture is written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so to translate certain things from ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into English is a difficult thing to do. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's hard. For instance, the word God. In the beginning, God. The beginning, Genesis 1, 1, 1. Our English word for God is G-O-D. That's it. It's weird. And we, but the, the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew word for God is Elohim. And we can get into a lot of other uh, usages of the word for God in Hebrew. We're not going to today because that would make you really bored. But the, here's the idea behind that word. The tricky part about converting that word into English is that it's used 2,700 times in Scripture. And not all of it does it it mean the creator God of the Bible. So at the beginning, when it says Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, in the beginning Elohim, there are multiple ways to translate it the rest of Scripture. In that version, that's the creator God, the one chief creator God of scripture. Okay? 
But there's three other ways you can translate Elohim. Another way to translate Elohim is gods, other gods. For instance, in Exodus chapter 12, the gods of Egypt. And you might be thinking, but those weren't real. Scripture never says they're not real. Scripture says that you should never have another god before your god. So here's Exodus chapter 12. It's very interesting. What's happening is there's a number of plagues that Moses is involved in um, with God's power to to put um, on the people of Egypt. And all of these plagues are a series of plagues that are at war against the particular God that that plague is attacking. For instance, Amun-Ra is the sun god in Egypt, in, for, the, for the Egyptians. And so when Moses raises his staff and blots out the sun, you can imagine it had effect on the people. There was a, like a palpable, wait a second, <laughs> I guess our God's not that powerful. And so over and over again, we see this in Exodus. Listen to Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the Elohim of Egypt. I am the Lord. Just an interesting reading, right? Now, we're Western Americans. We think, well, that's just gods. That's just their fake false gods. They're just silly. They didn't really get it. Let's read on. Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. This is their worship song after they escaped Egypt. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, my Elohim, and I will praise him. My father's Elohim, and I will exalt him. Verse 11. Who among the Elohim is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. So the writer of the writers of scripture really actually see God as the chief God amongst the gods. Weird stuff, right? Are you getting angry or weirded out yet? We've talked about this before, so don't, most of you, it's not a shock. Another way that Elohim is used is this idea called the divine council. We'll talk about that in a second. But this idea that God uses, in a sense, a staff team to process decisions with. We'll get into that. I know that sounds weird. Hang tight. Another way that Elohim is used in scripture is talking about spirits of the dead. (laughs) Okay, so 1 Samuel 12, uh, there's a really curious passage there about Samuel and, um, and him being kind of summoned and he's a spirit and it's just kind of a weird story, right? Uh, we also got some stuff going on in, in Isaiah 8 where consulting the spirits of the dead, and it's actually translate, it's actually consulting the Elohim. What do we do with this stuff, right? And just re-ask the question, do we really believe what the Bible has to say? 
Elohim in Hebrew is defined kind of this, I'm going to do my best with the translation, this idea of a being that inhabits the spiritual realm. So um, all of scripture has this idea that of heaven and earth, that there's the spiritual and the physical, there's the terrestrial and the celestial, and they overlap. And there's just all throughout scripture, you see heaven and earth language being used, overlap, intersinking. And so for us, it's hard because we see the material. We uh, don't really um, see all of the other stuff going on. Now, you might be saying, well, Ryan, what about false gods? I mean, that's, that's in Scripture, right? And when we talk about idols or things like that, right? We've been, we went through 1 Corinthians. We talked about idols. Paul's saying the idols in and of themselves are just wood and stone and things like that. But he says, but behind those things are actual connections too. So, so don't, don't have dinner with, you know, food sacrificed to idols in the temple because you're in the presence of, and what he says is a demigod, an Elohim. And so idols, and we can read Psalm 115, uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, um, some of those kind of um, passages that might help you in some research if you want to do more. But we think from our kind of post-enlightenment, you know, late modern stance that all those people were just silly, superstitious people. They're silly, they're superstitious, they're kind of, they've kind of been duped into thinking that there was a God behind this or behind that. And there's three or four passages in scripture that actually (laughs) the writer says, or, or God actually will say, have no other Elohim beside me. Exodus, you know, the the Ten Commandments, things like that. What the writer and what God is not saying is that those Elohim do not exist. What he's saying is no Elohim on parallel. There is no Elohim on parallel with him. So I'm just going to pose the question again. Do you believe what Scripture has to say? Or are we just kind of like, oh, this stuff's kind of weird. I'm going to stay away from it. I'd rather just stick to stories of Jesus being nice to people and telling us to be nice to others. Those are good stories. But scripture's full of a whole bunch of other things. And like I said, if we want Jesus' perspective, we've got to dig in here. Scripture believes, shows, writes, communicates that the world is populated. It's a populated spiritual universe and a populated physical universe. That idea of the divine council, we're just real quick. Anybody see that stupid movie, Clash of the Titans with Liam Neeson? You remember that one? Yeah, it's like the low point of his career. Anybody? No? Yeah? So it's that idea where it's like, you know, it, it, that's like what I think of in my mind when I think of the divine council, right? Listen to Psalm 82. We're going to read the whole thing. Actually, if someone has a Bible, I didn't put it in my notes. Can someone look up Psalm 82? Thanks. We're going to read the first verse now, but I'm going to read the whole thing in a second. It says, God presides in the great assembly, the divine council. He renders judgment among the gods, among the Elohim. Oh, that's weird. Right? We don't have any worship services 
that are worship songs that say that, right? It's just, it's not really in our lingo. Now, here's really, I think this is really important for us to understand, especially if you're new to the Bible. Or if you approach the Bible like a lot of us do when we approach things, and we just want to figure it out and move on. Because that's what we do. The Bible, the way most things unfold in the Bible, and this is something I've had to learn, is how we tend to understand how it works. We want to figure out the answer. We want to unlock the key. We want to uh, figure out the meeting immediately. But Scripture... For the most part, Scripture is what is called meditation literature. Okay? So this might help you kind of give yourself a little grace when you're reading the Bible. Who would like that? <laughs> Anybody? Okay. Let's just admit it. Like, we read stuff and we're like, what? I am dumb. And then we close it. But that's not what Scripture is meant to be. From the very beginning, it is assumed that you've read the whole thing. I know that sounds weird, so just hang with me for a second. Scripture is loaded with puzzles. We open Genesis 1 and we read it and we're like, in the beginning, God. We're like, okay, we can handle that. Then we read on and there's this curious passage that says, let us make man in our image. What? What's, who's us? Who's our? And then we get discouraged and we shut it. <laughs> There's all kind of puzzles. And we're meant to meditate on it. Anybody read Psalm 1? Psalm 1 is this beautiful psalm that talks about streams planted by living waters, meditating on scripture. You know that one? That is not a verse about reading your Bible every day, primarily. I mean, it is. I mean, it's, that's good. What that scripture is actually asking you and me to do, it's actually designed, it's actually saying that scripture is not designed to give up its secrets on first reading. Okay? It's actually meant, you're meant to read further. You're actually meant to think about these things, to meditate on these things. It's not designed to be a quick read and a finish. Check, done. Scripture is actually meant for us to wrestle with. And so let's read Psalm. Who, anybody got Psalm 82 up? Thanks. Let's read this. Like the tiniest font ever. Who bought these Bibles? All right. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long, this is God talking, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth. For all the nations are your inheritance. Many different speakers in that conversation, uh, but but the end of it is the prayer. The end of it is the prayer of the psalmist that says, "Rise up, O God, 
and judge the nations. The nations are the ones that are in controlled, controlled by the gods. So here you go back, Randy. So this is this really ancient, ancient language. And we have to wrestle with that. What does that mean for us? Basically, I'm going to just share with you a couple things as we get through this. But that the God of the Bible shares the universe, shares his universe with other creatures. Meaning, his rule and his authority is mitigated through these other creatures, celestial and terrestrial. Meaning, in Genesis, he gives Adam and Eve, he says, you rule the garden, you rule. This is your domain, this is your arena. And God has set up the universe in such a way as to run it through intermediaries. Okay? And it's meant to be, the intention was, for it to be this symphony of unified wills running the universe. And then the fall came. And we've talked about the fall. We talked about the fall last week, the week before. And there's a talking snake on page three of the Bible. And um, all of those things. Divine sorcerer, um, one who shines of brightness. It's actually connected in the Hebrew with the word bronze. It's just this play on words, which is really interesting. Ancient Near East authors were not gullible. They didn't actually believe that snakes could talk. This is a conversation. This is a beautiful picture of what evil looks like, what the fall looks like, what really is true of humanity since then. And we've talked about all that the last couple of weeks. But he introduces, the story introduces a creature that has more than meets the eye, that is actually shows up with more agency than other creatures, a being that wants to convince human rulers that the creator is holding out on them, okay, and that actually they have the right to rule in a greater authority that is, than has been given them, okay? So his idea was uh, from, from, from the devil to Eve is you can be Elohim. You can be like God. You were made for one thing, but you can be another. And so what this creature is trying to do, this creature is trying to actually get humans to overstep their bounds. But what's interesting is this is a creature that has overstepped his bounds. Right? This is interesting reading of Genesis. And then we get all of this from the line of the humans. There will be a Messiah. Well, this is the taste of Messiah. Crush your head. And, and you will strike his heel. And it's this beautiful, like, real depiction of the human story that we all are faced with. I mean, you get, you know, chapters 1 through 11 is this one sweeping narrative. You get Cain, who's a descendant of, of Adam and Eve. And he faces this beastly temptation inside of himself, this animal within some authors call it this crouching at the door, waiting to pounce on Cain. And so this idea that there's this human rebellion is something that we're used to hearing in Scripture, in scripture and in church on Sunday morning. And usually we hear it as, ah, uh, stupid humans. 
those first two ones just screwed it up for everybody. Now we're stuck with it. But really, that's not the point. The Bible is trying to tell us that the world is the way it is, not because of human stupidity, but that there's this dimension of reality that is not easy for us to see and that works not just on an individual level, but on a corporate level. And we've got this interesting thing going on. We've got Cain who, who continues like to continue to fall for, the, fall for the, uh, the trick. But then we have this weird passage in Genesis 6 that you can read on your own and think about because I'm not going through it. But it's about the sons of Elohim and they come down and they have sex with human women. It's like a nighttime story for the kids. Right? Like maybe a maybe a felt board or something. <laughs> Kids, will you draw a picture of this and we'll talk about it? No. But it's interesting, right? What that's showing is scripture is initially there is a human rebellion, there's a human fall, and there seems to be at the same time a spiritual rebellion and a spiritual fall that mirrors humanity. A terrestrial and a celestial fall. this stuff, right? You're going to leave it in. You'll be like, okay, can we just get back to like how I can be nice? <laughs> well, this has a lot to do with it, right? The point I'm trying to get to as I'm upside down here is this. Behind the human injustice that we see all around us is a spiritual injustice. Behind things, there's there's a co-opting, there's a partnering, and, and sometimes you don't even know it's happening. It's just, but it's, but it's real. The biblical authors want us to see that there's more to work than just, there's more at work than just human agents. There's more at work in our world. There's rebels of the divine council. There's spiritual beings. There's things all over scripture that tell us this. The question I'm asking you is this, do you believe it? Do you believe what scripture's saying? This is something I've had to wrestle with. We see in Isaiah chapter 13 and 14, this the prophet's talking about Babylon. Remember Babylon? We talked about Babylon last uh, beginning of this year and this human king. Uh, and, he, and, and, and Isaiah describes this human king, king in, t- in terms of like a cosmic spiritual rebellion, that this king is not just a king, but this king is connected to something bigger going on in the unseen. So profound. And I want to admit something to you. What started as one of the biggest hang-ups for me, reading scripture, like all this stuff, has actually become some of the richest and um, answered a lot of questions for me moving forward in my faith. So running through the library of scripture, this unfolding story which sees its climax in Jesus is this mirrored rebellion between heaven and earth. And this idea of a cosmic conflict, this idea of a warfare happening, it's central. Central to this figure is the devil, but you, what's interesting is scripture has like this pictorial mosaic. You ever seen one of those picture mosaics where it's like a thousand little pictures that make up a big picture? Tell me you know what you, I'm talking about. Okay. You're, you're with me still, which is great. We're almost to the end. Hang in there. But that idea of a pictorial mosaic, 
we see in Scripture with Jesus, right? We see this hint in Genesis 3. We see more hints along the way. We got Abraham, who's like this guy, and he does all these good things, except for when he doesn't, except for when he's a jerk, except for when he kind of sells his wife out and he's mean to immigrants, you know, that guy. So he's good, except for when he's not. And then we have David, right? Okay, we're getting closer. It's the king, right? We get this picture of what it could be like, but then, well, he's good until he's not. And then we got prophets after prophets, and we got the Passover, which is this picture, which is kind of clear, but it's kind of not. And we got the temple, which is this image, this architecture, it's kind of clear, it's kind of not. And then we get to this place where we're just like, what, what, what we need is, we need a, another human. We need a human that's going to do it, that's going to like actually do it, right? We need somebody that's actually going to point the way, that's actually going to become what we need. But the same goes for evil in Scripture. We get pictures. We get a talking snake in Genesis 3. And then what is Cain faced with? He's actually faced with this, this sin from within, this something you can't touch or quantify or name. It's just, it's coming from within. Then we have all these things that we see throughout Scripture. This animal lurking inside, this agents of the serpent, this guy named Nimrod, Right? No one names their kid Nimrod. First of all, it's a bad name. But second of all, it's that whole story in Genesis 10 about the Tower of Babel. This idea we can ascend to the heavens. We can become Elohim. Last week we talked about John chapter 8. And there was this comparison between the two seeds. The seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. And these aren't like DNA, right? This isn't like DNA seed we're talking about. We're talking more of like a, in a sense, like a spiritual DNA where, where Jesus actually accuses the religious leaders of actually being the spiritual DNA of the devil. It's not what you want to hear from Jesus. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, this is Paul talking. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Pretty sure if he would be using Hebrew, he would be using the word Elohim. And these are all on a corporate level, an instigation and an aggravation of the cosmic rebellion that's happening. Even the word Israel, when when the people of Israel are named Israel, you know what that word actually means? To struggle with L, to struggle with God. So all through scripture, and then Jesus shows up on scene. And he declares that the kingdom of God has come. That God is taking back his rule and, and in this world, and he's merging divine and human. Elohim and humanity in Jesus. That's the incarnation. And so much, there's so much in scripture that I can't account for reading it as a materialist. 
just from my own little naturalist perspective, my own little materialistic perspective, so many things I can't account for. What do we do with the fact that Jesus at the end of Luke says the reason the Son of Man came was to destroy the works of the devil? What do we do with that? So it's crystal clear to Jesus that the enemy is not human kingdoms. He starts this kind of populist cell movement in Galilee, right? This little group of people. And they're not protesting the local garrison. They're not throwing rocks at Roman centurions. They're not doing that stuff. He walks in, but here's the thing. He walks into a local village and spiritual evil freaks out. Do with that. And we separate exorcisms in scripture and healings. And for Jesus, they weren't separate at all. And he does this weird thing and he and, and he and he confronts, he, he actually befriends people that have no business. They're not even allowed in the temple. And he invites them into his presence, the temple of his presence. And Jesus begins to turn things upside down. In Luke chapter 10, it says, Jesus says, I, I'm seeing Satan. People give their allegiance to Jesus and his, his new humanity and his love. And, and the evil ones are being just dethroned. And, and he sees himself and he presents himself as, a hum, as the human seed of the woman in contrast to the seed of the devil. And Jesus, here's what's interesting, is you, you follow his life trajectory all the way out. He does not seize power. He empties himself. He's defeated. Sorry, he defeats evil by letting evil physically defeat him. So what do we do with all this? I mean, this is like, welcome to church. There's football later. You can forget all of this if you want. Well, where does this land for us? What does this mean for us in our city? What does this mean for us in our lives today? And I've been thinking about this for a while. And the first thing I just want you to know is that it's not put me in a mindset where I'm scared of ghosts and spirits and I'm watching like, you know, X-Files and stuff. No, that's not where this puts me. But it clues me in personally into the reality that I'm constantly being pulled into the idea of redefining good and evil in my life. I'm always feeling the pull to redefine good and evil in my life based on what I feel like my needs are. And those, like we talked about the last couple of weeks, are all lies that I believe about myself. Or put another way, there's a battle for me to do what's best for me at the expense of other people around me. So if I start my little circle, my, my inner world, my family, my city, my country, and I let these narratives define me, oh, you need safety, you need security, you don't want to fear, you don't need to suffer, you shouldn't take that kind of abuse, you, should, you, sh- you could have that too, all these things. If I let these narratives define me, I'm captive. And I have to actively fight against other allegiances that pull me 
that come from within and come from outside of me. Now, what's interesting is we, we throw around the word faith a lot. And the word faith. And a lot of times in our minds, in our churches, we think of faith the same thing as belief. Faith is belief. It's mentally believing something and trusting that that's true. But that's not what faith is. Most of the time in the New Testament, the word faith, it's actually the Greek word pistos, actually means allegiance or fidelity. So what the Apostle Paul is saying most of the time is, when you have faith, he's saying you're actually exercising allegiance. It's not just a mental agreement. It's actually a whole life reordering that which says, I am in allegiance to Jesus. Versus anything else we could be in allegiance towards. Right? And so the convenient overlooking I do in my life about allegiances is pretty profound. Because faith is fidelity. And allegiance to Jesus is everything. And what I find myself doing many times in my life is I numb off to things. Or maybe I conveniently overlook the need around me. Or the stories I tell myself about others to make myself feel better about myself and my choices. Or my lack of choices. Or my status. Here's the interesting thing, guys, and, and as we really are finishing right now. I'm 45 years old, and there's only been a couple of times that I've actually been confronted with the physical presence of evil in a demonic form. 45 years. So I'm not telling you that, hey, let's go out there and let's confront some demons. I'm not saying that, okay? You'll get that in some traditions, some Christian groups. It's not what I'm about. What I'm saying is let's open our eyes and trust what Scripture's saying, that there is more going on than we're aware of. And if we approach Scripture as Jesus does, and there's a backdrop to it that's really hard for us to understand, may we begin to lean into that a little bit. Meditate on that. Think about that. Because the same temptation for you and me today is the same temptation in the garden. Is God holding out on me? And we have the choice of joining the rebellion or continuing to posture ourselves in ways that are allegiant to Jesus because of this battle happening. Do we participate in the rebellion or in the kingdom? And I know that's a lot. And we are finished. But let me pray for us. Because hopefully, this gives us a little bit going forward as we start to piece together these, these talks and these ideas. Um, I want to encourage you that these things are not meant to be just like, huh, I'm just going to go on my merry way and keep all that in my head. My encouragement to you is to go talk about it. Like, have a conversation. Um, and you can be like, yeah, Ryan's full of junk. Yeah, that's fine. You can have those conversations and those thoughts. My encouragement to you is to have them. Like, have them. If you're not in a small group, you want to be in one, let us know. We would love to connect you with great people. But let me pray for us.